It's lovely to see you this morning. Welcome. We're heading to Amos for our Bible reading. Um, Spoiler alert, it does get better. So hang in there. We're reading from Amos 9, 1 to 10. I saw the Lord standing by the altar and he said, Strike the tops of the pillars so that the thresholds shake. Bring them down on the heads of all the people. Those who are left I will kill with the sword. Not one will get away. No one will escape. Though they dig down to the depths below, from there my hand will take them. Though they climb up to the heavens above, from there I will bring them down. Though they hide themselves on the top of Carmel, there I will hunt them down and seize them. Though they hide from the eyes at the bottom of the sea, there I will command the serpent to bite them. Though they are driven into exile by their enemies, there I will command the sword to slay them. I will keep my eye on them for harm and not for good. The Lord Almighty, he touches the earth and he melts it, and all who live in it mourn. The whole land rises like the Nile, then sinks like the river of Egypt. He builds his lofty palace in the heavens and sets its foundation on the earth. He calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out over the face of the land. The Lord is his name. Are you Israelites the same to me as the Cushites? Are you not Israelites the same to me as the Cushites, declares the Lord? Did I not bring Israel up from Egypt, the Philistines from Kaftor, and the Armenians from Kerr? Surely the eyes of the sovereign Lord are on the sinful kingdom. I will destroy it from the face of the earth. Yet I will not totally destroy the descendants of Jacob, declares the Lord. For I will give the command and I will shake the people of Israel among all the nations as grain is shaken in a sieve and not a pebble will reach the ground. All the sinners among my people will die by the sword. All those who say disaster will not overtake or meet us. Thanks, Jonathan. Perhaps it's struck you as a bit odd that on a day of celebration, where we are speaking of new life and having a baptism, that we would come to a passage uh, that speaks of destruction. It feels a bit like threading a needle, trying to see how these things hold together. But I want to encourage you this morning that there is no tension in the Lord in this. As I was telling uh, the band and those serving earlier, there's a perfect harmony with the God who would say these words, and the God who loves and saves you. And it's our challenge this morning to come before that God and to hear what he has to say to us. Uh, With that, I invite you to uh, bow your heads and pray. I might ask, Elijah, if you don't mind, can you back the gain off a bit on this? It's a bit bit hot, thanks. Let's pray. Our Father, as we come to you now, we come to this word of judgment. And Lord, it's uncomfortable. It's difficult for us. But we know that your word is true and it never fails, that there's not one bit of your word that falls to the ground without accomplishing the purposes for which you commanded it. So we ask this morning that you would help us to receive your word for us today. Lord, you've given us so generously and bountifully of your Holy Spirit who indwells us, and it is him that we need right now to understand as we open these words. So, Lord, would you give us that gift again this morning of understanding that we would see ourselves afresh in your light. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we're nearly done with Amos. Uh, This book, we've themed the unrelenting roar. And as we come to chapter 9, which is the final chapter, this is not the last message 
It's the second to last message. And uh, I trust you'll see next week how this all prepares us for Christmas and for uh, all of the things that we normally are accustomed to thinking about when we think about our great salvation. Uh, you probably haven't heard many sermons through the book of Amos. Uh, if you have, I doubt you've maybe heard one on this chapter, uh, at least this part of the chapter. Uh, but we're going to look at it uh, with you together this morning as we look at how God is now calling for destruction. Amos has pictured God as a lion roaring, and his people are non-responsive. It's as if they, they have wax in their ears, they can't hear what's going on, and this lion is roaring, but Amos hears it, and Amos is in this position of, I, I, I can't help but speak what I'm hearing God say to his people. The lion is roared, who can but prophesy, Amos would say. Amos didn't set out to be a prophet. He didn't uh, go to the school of prophecy. He didn't get a degree in prophecy. He, he wasn't out to make a living as a prophet. In fact, he likely had a very thriving business, uh, sort of an agricultural business, running sheep and, and cattle and uh, likely a vineyard as well, uh, also groves, sycamore groves and so forth. And so Amos is in this position of he's hearing what God has said, and he's called to go deliver an uncomfortable message. As we look at this chapter, you'll see everything sort of builds to the, to the finale. Here we have the final and the fifth vision, where we'll see that God is inescapably present, verses 1 to 4. Then there's a final hymn. You may not have been keeping track of these little hymns, but this is the third and final hymn, or doxology, the song of praise to God in verses 5 and 6. And then there's a, a final dispute, a, a, a final sort of argument, and we get to overhear what God is saying to his people, uh, kind of a closing argument, if you will. And we'll come back and look at these in more detail as we go through. This is where we've been. I encourage you, uh, go back. You can listen to uh, the messages online if you have questions, if things aren't making sense, or maybe you missed something, you feel like the, the, the puzzle's not together you'll see throughout this book um, how God is speaking to a wayward people. Last week, we saw that those who ignore God, specifically who ignore his words, suffer for his silence. Initially, it's their silence of hearing him, but eventually he just stops speaking. Thankfully, that's not the case today as we have the gospel told to us proclaimed from the apostles, and now through the saints throughout all the world. We also last week uh, tried to raise this question, you know, why would you study a book like this? And, you know, so, some people raise some objections and say, this is kind of unpleasant, right? Uh, you know, you see the picture behind you. No one really looks, likes to look at a dead carcass. You're like, eh, that's a bit yuck, right? Why would you want to look at a people who suffered judgment? Isn't that a bit all the things we don't like about religion? right? Uh, some people say, you know, it's ancient history. It's not really relevant to me. You know, give me something for the 21st century. Give me something that sort of deals with my life day in and day out. Now, the good news is that the God who was living then is living now, and, and he's very much a part of your life. And some people say, you know, it's not really about Jesus. Eh. We'll see if we can correct that objection. Uh, how do we study Amos? We, we, we saw before, we, we can read Amos as a cautionary tale, right? Because again, the same God who was alive then is alive now. And we can see how his people fell. We can read it as a cautionary tale. We, we can read the word of God like a, like a window, a, a window into God's character, or like a mirror, a mirror held up to our lives. And we can see how we align or, or fail to align with what God has called us to be. And really, there's a relevance here for us as a guide for our own times, because the people that God has a problem with, or the people that God is ready to judge, are people who were not sort of the, the, the pagans, you know, you might think of an atheist, you might think of somebody who just has no box for God, they don't, not into spiritual things, they're sort of, you know, all uh, naturalist, and, and, and they don't believe in the supernatural. Well, the people in Amos's day were going to church, <laughs> or the equivalent of church for them. They were people who were singing songs. They were people who were playing on worship teams. They were people who were delivering messages, people who were facilitating the worship 
of Yahweh. But, as Alec Machir would say in his great commentary on Amos, it was a religion of pretense. It was all posturing, it was all show. The substance was missing. I'm going to quote from him time to time in this message, but he summarizes it succinctly to say this, the essence of the pretense of these people is throwing a cloak of religion over a life motivated towards self. Throwing a cloak of religion over a life motivated towards self. And if you think about it, that's the most dangerous kind of religion, isn't it? That's the kind of religion the world hates. Because the world is sick and tired of people saying, well, God told me so, therefore I'm going to use you and abuse you. We've had enough of that. A cloak of religion that's just meant to disguise our own greed or our own lust for power or our own lust for control or pleasure or whatever it may be, even, just, even if it's just a religion that says, look, look, look over here so you don't see what I'm doing over there. Amos really is a guide for our times. And here we come to chapter 9, verse 1 to 10, where God is calling for destruction. And our big question is, what is the hope for a corrupt people? And I saw questions, I got a few of them. This is one of those texts that leaves you not just with one question, but like four or five, six. So try to pare it down a little bit. But one question is, what is the hope for a corrupt people? Do we got any builders out there? Any people sort of work in the trades, right? Uh, this is not my world, so please excuse my lack of ter correct terminology. But what my understanding is, if you get, if you get rot in your house, or rot in your walls, or it's overtaken sort of by, by mildew. You, you can't just walk in and kind of like plaster over something. You can't just walk in and just sort of patch a hole because the whole thing is corrupt. The, 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 whole, the whole house is actually just infested and contaminated. At some point you need to say, you know what? We gotta knock this thing down. It's actually not safe for anybody to live in this thing. And so the question becomes, what is the hope for a people who become as corrupt or as infested or infected as that house that needs to be knocked down? What do you do? I think society wrestles with this question as well. What do you do with those people? Another question that comes is, Sorry, this is another way of asking it. At what point is that corruption irreversible? Um, another question is, would God really destroy his own people? I think this is the uncomfortable one. I'm just going to name it. This is the one that you're like, ugh. I don't know if I like thinking about that. Would God really destroy his own people? We're going to let that hang uncomfortably for a while. What this text will make very clear is that God will destroy sin from the earth. He will destroy sin upon the earth. He, 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 he will eradicate it. It will not be allowed to remain in his creation forever. He will remove it. He will deal with it. So, Another way of sort of working through this, if this is all sounding too academic for you and, and you're like, just give me pictures, just give me pictures, give me pictures, all right? If you're a picture person and you like to visualize, here's what I'd like you to do as we go through these verses. I want you to just, just walk with Amos who's beholding the Lord. Walk with Amos who's beholding the Lord and I want you to, 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 to track some things about the Lord. Where, where are his feet? Notice the feet of the Lord. Notice the arm of the Lord. Notice the eyes of the Lord. Notice the hand of the Lord. Track the Lord's movements in this passage. And that'll help you get a picture of who he is. Well, let's jump in. Amos uh, chapter 9, verse 1 to 4, we have the fifth and final vision where Amos sees here that God is inescapably present. Follow along with me as we read. He sees, God sees, Amos sees God, excuse me, standing by the false altar. I saw the Lord standing by the altar, 
That is key. Don't just, don't just sort of gloss over that. Oh, there's the Lord. You know, he's there by the altar. Where, where else would he be? If we do that, if we say, where else would he be? That's exactly what, what, what the people at the temple in Bethel would have been thinking. Wasn't the Lord always there? And the answer is no, he wasn't there. Why? Because he said he would put his name and he would put his presence, not the fullness of his presence, but he would allow part of his presence to dwell at the temple in Jerusalem where the ark was in the Holy of Holies. This is Bethel. This is in the false sanctuary, the pseudo-sanctuary. This is in the temple that Jeroboam set up when the kingdom was divided. Jeroboam, you recall, God enabled him to be king. God asked him to lead. This is as the, the northern and the southern tribes split, and the ten tribes went to form the northern kingdom. The two tribes stayed, Judah and Benjamin. They stayed the southern kingdom. David is from the tribe of Judah. Jeroboam thought, you know, if they're going back to Jerusalem in Judah for all these festivals, guess what? They're not going to maintain their allegiance to, to this sort of new political state that we have going. It's, it's very wise and practical reasoning. The problem was it was totally corrupt and against the command of God. So what Jeroboam did was he said, look, we're going to set up kind of a replica, sort of like our version of the temple. And we're going to set up our temple and, and, and we'll kind of sort of copy a little bit those ways. And that's where we'll tell the people to go to worship. You say, look, don't go all the way down to Jerusalem to worship. Come up here. It's all the same God anyway. Have we heard that reasoning before? Oh, you know, many roads lead to God. Why do you got to insist on this Jesus guy? You know, wow. You know, crystals might work for you. You know, this person likes to go on yoga retreats. This person just goes for a walk in nature. This person is a Buddhist, and you know, they tap into to this, you know. And, and before long, you just sort of get this sense that's, passed along through society that religion is religion and spirituality is spirituality and, and behind it is this one amorphous deity that we don't understand and if you want to grab onto Jesus, well you can grab onto Jesus but I'm going to grab onto Allah or I'm going to grab onto Buddha or I'm just going to hold on to myself and my own inner feelings of what spirituality really is. Have we heard this before? I mean in Bethel they were even calling him Yahweh. It's not like they had the wrong name. It was Yahweh, but it wasn't worship in the way God had prescribed. And so they're there going through the motions decade after decade, century after century. And they're thinking God's there, but he's not. And now Amos sees him there. He's finally shown up. And what's he going to do? Strike the tops of the pillars so that the thresholds shake. He's talking about the building. Bring them down on the heads of all the people. Those who are left, I will kill the, with the sword. Not one will get away. None will escape. God shows up finally and he says, he says we're, we're knocking this down. It's rotted and it's corrupt. And the refrain is, no one's going to get away. That's what the next verses are about. But before we move on, note that God is personally present in his judgment. God is personally present in his judgment. He finally shows up at their worship. And this cloak of religion, this, this, this spirituality that they've concocted for themselves it is absolutely useless when it comes to engaging with the living God. I don't care how smart you are. I don't care how many books you've read. I don't care how many feelings you feel. Truth is not determined by your own subjective opinion. The living God stands alone and he says, I will be worshiped in the way that I command. I will bring 
order and justice and righteousness. God is personally involved. I'm going to leave you a little Bible hack right now. We're talking about life hack. Here's a little Bible hack. I always struggled with the book of Revelation, and I think it was Gordon Fee. I struggle with the book of Revelation because it's all these symbols and pictures and, you know, animals and I, it's just crazy, right? And I read Gordon Fee's commentary and he said, look, really, it's, it's not that complicated, Revelation. It's like, easy for you to say. <laughs> it's not that complicated. Really, all the book of Revelation is, it's, it's just a worship service. What? Yeah, 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 the... the the seals and the, the trumpets and then the bowls, it's, it's really just, it's liturgy. It's, it's, just, it's just the heavenly host preparing for the arrival of Yahweh on earth. Ah. Ah. So all these things, the destruction, all the things you see, all that that's happening in Revelation is the presence of a holy God coming to a sinful earth. And the fall of Babylon the Great and all those who worship the beast and the dragon and so on and so forth. So here, this is about God personally being there in his judgment. We don't have time to go into detail on these next three verses, but really I want you to understand that, that these are people who will have no way of escape. Look at verse 2. Though they dig down to the depths below, literally Sheol. God says if they try to go to hell, if they want to hide in hell, from there my hand will take them. Though they climb to the heavens above, they, they, they want to they, they hide in heaven. From there my hand will take them. How about the natural world? We move from the spiritual to the natural. Though they hide themselves on the top of Carmel, uh, one of the highest peaks in all Israel. Though they hide up there, there I will hunt them down and seize them. Though they hide from my eyes at the bottom of the sea, my kids were asking me the other day, Dad, what's the lowest place on earth? I said, I think it's Mariana's Trench. I don't know if that's still accurate. That's what I learned. Mariana's Trench, it's deeper than Everest is high. You go to the bottom of Mariana's Trench. God says, you find your way down there, little and you can survive it. There I will command the serpent to bite them. Though they are driven into exile. So there's no spiritual refuge. There's no natural refuge. How about a political refuge? Though... They are driven into exile by their enemies. There I will command the sword to slay them. God's saying, nowhere to run to, baby. Nowhere to hide. God is inescapably present. Inescapably present. Oh. I pray you hunger for the presence of God. Because he is real, and he is good, and he is holy. But please, please, please do not trivialize the presence of God. Don't take his presence lightly. As Paul would say to believers, he said, do you not know that your, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? And the point isn't to say, gee, you got a really awesome body. It's so glorious, it's like a temple. No, his point is to say, you host the presence of the living God. God is with you. The Holy One is among you. When God appears for judgment of these people, no one's going to escape. Excuse me, I forgot to advance the slides. <clears throat> Next, we see the final hymn and in this hymn, God is presented as incomparably powerful. The picture grows. But note in verse 4, sorry, I'll go back. Note in verse 4, God says, I'll keep my eye on them for harm and not for good. Again, this isn't a God who people just sort of get away with stuff. Satan wants you to think that. Satan wants you to think that God doesn't really care what goes on here. That God is just looking the other way half the time. He's either asleep or he's drunk or he's busy doing something else in some other universe, parallel or otherwise, and, and he's not actually engaged in what's going on. That's what the enemy wants you to think. So go on. Live your best life now. God doesn't really care anyway. Just make sure you tick the spiritual boxes so at the end of the day you can say, yeah, I was there. That's what the enemy wants you to think. Meanwhile, Jesus, who is God in flesh, 
Jesus said, every careless word we utter, we will be called to give an account for. Have mercy on me, Lord. Have mercy. Jesus said two people went in to pray. One was a, one was a Pharisee, a tax, the other was a tax collector. The Pharisee is, is there and he's, he's so comfortable in his own performance and his own religion that he just, he can't help but notice the guy over there and say, God, I'm so glad you didn't make me like him. Whew, I dodged a bullet not being like that guy over there. Full of pride and self-righteousness. He walked out of the room condemned. Meanwhile, the tax collector and the sinner, he couldn't even look to heaven. He just beat his breast and he said, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Have mercy on me. He walked away justified. Why? Because he prayed that day? No, because he entrusted himself to the living God, who he knew to be holy and just and perfect and righteous. God says, I'm going to keep my eye on them. The evil that they've been doing, I'm going to make sure that evil falls back upon them because they have so blocked their ears, they have so rejected me, God says, there's nothing left. Now we come to the hymn in which we see God is incomparably powerful. Here Amos now picks up the pen and he speaks. He says, the Lord, the Lord Almighty, he touches the earth and it melts. You ever seen kids play with jello, right? You know, they, maybe you want to go home this afternoon and make some jello, a little spiritual object lesson for the kids, right? Go into the kitchen, make some jello, right? And what, I don't know about you, but jello is a whole lot more fun to play with than it is to eat. I don't really like, or you guys call it jelly, sorry. Everyone's like, what's he talking about, jello? Jelly, you guys call it jelly. Um, and, 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 you know, you put this, and, and you just like to poke it, right? I don't know, I like to just sort of like poke it, and you just sort of watch it wobble. Right? All right. It's disgusting if you ask me, but that, that, it's so fun to play with. The picture here is the Lord. The Lord, sovereign almighty, he merely touches the earth and it, it melts. Now, we probably ought not to think of this as dissolves. It's, it, it's more that trembling, that, 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 that loss of structure that we're accustomed to thinking of with jello. All who live in it more in the whole land rises like the Nile, then sinks like the river of Egypt. He builds his lofty palace in the heavens. He sets its foundation on the earth. He calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out over the face of the land. The Lord is his name, or Yahweh is his name. The I am is his name. It's a hymn of praise to God who is so powerful that even his presence upon the earth causes it to shake. I don't want to get ahead of myself too much, but last week he looked at Amos chapter 8, and God talked about this day of judgment. And in the judgment, he said, it's going to be a bitter day for you. The sun's going to go dark. It's going to be like a day of mourning for an only son. I want you to remember Calvary and what happened when Jesus went to the cross. What happened? Darkness over the earth for three hours in the middle of the day. And it was a day of mourning, like mourning of an only son. The creation responds to the presence of its creator. You might have heard the song playing, So Will I, as you came in this morning. I like that song, not because it's a perfect song, but I like how it puts us in a position of the creative. And it says, if this is how the universe responds to its creator, what am I going to do? Yahweh is his name. God is incomparably powerful. And then we come to the final dispute, verses 7 to 10, where in which we see that God is impeccably pure. Impeccable means you can't find fault in him. You can't lay a charge at his feet that's going to stick. He's right not because he is powerful. He's right because he's pure. And he's holy. And Amos is going to point, he's going to relay God's word that points us towards hope in God's moral perfection. 
but we first come to some very curious verses. Verse 7, are you not Israelites? The same to me as the Cushites, declares the Lord. It's a rhetorical question. God says, are you guys different to me than, than the Cushites who live sort of south of Egypt, kind of in the Sudan area nowadays? Are you, are you guys different than them? To which the Israelites would have said, of course we're different than them. What was all that business with Pharaoh and the plagues and the patriarchs and, and you telling me that you're going to call us out of Egypt and we're going to, you know, or we're going to be your people? Of course we're not the same. You could argue that their whole religious system was built on this fundamental fact that they were God's special people. Everything was underpinned by that. Then God asked them another question. Didn't I bring Israel up from Egypt? The Philistines from Kaftor and the Arameans from Kerr? Now, we don't know where Kaftor and Kerr is. But you, you, could, just, you could just anticipate it. God says, are you any different to me than these other people? And to which they said, well, but the Exodus... To which God said, well, didn't I give the Philistines an exodus? I mean, how did they get where they were? And didn't I give the Arameans an exodus of their own? It's like they said, God, you took us for a walk. And he said, didn't I take them for a walk too? What's going on here? Some people take this to say God denies any sort of special relationship with Israel. I don't think that's the case. This isn't perfect, but I'd like to illustrate it this way. From time to time, I will get into a discussion with my children, and my children will try to present to me an argument that I should allow them to do something that extends beyond their either responsibility or privilege. And inevitably, in the course of that, what comes back is, oh, but come on, Dad. And you see it in their eyes. It's like, don't we have something special here? Come on, Dad. And it's as if if I were to come back to them and say, look, I know you're my kid, but you're still a kid. You have other siblings. It's not to say I don't have a special relationship with you. I do have a special relationship with you. But guess what? You got a brother and a sister. Or just more brothers. <laughs> and we have a relationship with them too. Again, listen to what Matyar says. These words are directed precisely to those who are living in a spiritual dream world. Forgetful of holiness, sin and its rewards, they fancy that a date in history has put God eternally in their debt and that irrespective of his character, they make their character, they may count on his cooperation. Because of a date in history, because of a date on a calendar, it doesn't matter how I live, God. You're a living God. I'm a living person. It doesn't matter how we relate to each other because of what happened way back on X calendar date. Now, he's writing about the Israelites and how they were conceiving of the Exodus, but I wonder whether that applies to some of us and how we think about the day we made a decision for Christ. Well, Lord, I walked the aisle in 1969. Billy Graham came to town, and I strode on up to the front. I've been living like a pagan for the last 25 years, but that day, God, that was a great day, wasn't it? I've been living as if you practically don't even exist. I've been disregarding your word. I've been following my own selfish desires, my own, my own impulses, my own sin. I've been covering myself in it. Yeah, I come to church from time to time. I've been doing all this, but man, God, wasn't that a good day back then? Could have been written for us. You see, a covenant is not 
a ticket. A covenant is a relationship. The people of Israel were in a relationship with the living God, but they had denied him practically at every turn. And so God's saying, hey, practically you're pagans. And I love pagans too. I move them around on the globe too. The thing that makes this special, God is saying to Israel, is that you are my people. You reflect my ways. You listen to me. I receive worship and glory from you. That's what makes this special. Verse 8. Surely the eyes of the Lord are on the sinful kingdom. I will destroy it from the face of the earth. This is our big idea. God will remove sin. You can read it from the pages of Genesis. You can read it in the pages of Revelation. You can read it all the way throughout, throughout Scripture. God is holy, and he will show himself to be holy. He will not abide sin. He will destroy it. He'll remove it. And he will create what is loving and what is good and what is pure and what is holy. His eyes are on the sinful kingdom to destroy it. This, I cannot, I cannot tell you how important it is that you don't read this and say, well, that's an Old Testament book. And that's in Old Testament times, and so that's not in New Testament times. It's in the letters of Paul where he says, do you not know that those who practice, and he gives a vice list. He has multiple vice lists in the New Testament. He says, these people will not inherit the kingdom of God. You won't be a part of it. At the end of Revelation, those people outside of the heavenly city where there's beautiful trees and living water and, and, and rivers of life flowing and the nations are being healed and, and it's all glorious and beautiful. Outside the gate are the liars and the sorcerers and the adulterers and those who practice witchcraft and those who, who set up themselves in opposition to God. Jesus said about sin, if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better to go into life maimed than to bring you and all your hosts of desires into hell. This is not an Old Testament, Old Covenant thing versus New Covenant thing. It's not. Don't read it that way. And it begs the question, who's left? And almost from out of nowhere, Almost from out of nowhere, we read verse 8b. Yet I will not totally destroy the descendants of Jacob. Northern kingdom, Israel, your, your existence as a, as a nation state, your, your existence as a political entity, yeah, you're, you're done. But I won't destroy all the descendants of Jacob. Verse 9. For I will give the command and I will shake the people of Israel among all the nations as grain is shaken in a sieve and not a pebble will reach the ground. All the sinners among my people will die by the sword. All those who say disaster will not overtake or meet us. Those are the people God has in mind. The people who are sinning and who are saying, yeah, we're not really accountable for this. Yeah, it doesn't really matter. Well, whatever. Grace and mercy and love, you know, all that stuff. But verse 9 gives us a perfect picture. And if you've been trying to follow the hand of the Lord in all this, in his hand now he's holding a sieve. If you don't know what a sieve is, a sieve is basically, it's, a, it's an instrument of discrimination. Just like a plumb line was an instrument of discrimination to show what was, what was true and, and accurate and what was not. Here the sieve is an instrument of discrimination to remove the impure from the pure to separate the wheat, the good grain, from the chaff. 
Man, I, I, I love how fitting God's judgment is because anyone who has, who's paying attention at all, who's been listening to Amos at all, will, will pick up on this. Do you remember one of the things that God had against them? It was the way they conducted business. It was their commerce. And he said, in your commerce, what you do is you, you skimp on, on, on the measure and you boost the price. And one of the ways they skimped on the measure was if you wanted to go get a, a, a bushel of wheat, I don't know how much that is, maybe that's more than you could carry, but let's say you want to go get some wheat for the day, you know what they do? They get the broom out, they pick it up off the floor, they sweep a few rocks in with it too. You sell the sweepings with the wheat. That's why when I go to the grocery store, I take all that stuff off the banana. I don't, I don't need that other thing growing there, you know? I'm not going to pay for that. They were selling all this bad stuff in with the wheat. So here God says, I'm going to put you through into a sieve. I'm going to shake you. And what comes through is going to be the good. And those will be shaken out into the land. But the impure, the rocks, the pebbles, the dirt, all that stuff, that's going to be taken away. And notice how comprehensive it is. Not a pebble will reach the ground. And here God is. He finally shows up. He's standing beside the altar. And one of the last pictures, not the last, but one of the last pictures he gives is he says, I want you to imagine, people of Israel, you are, you are grain in my sieve, and I am I'm shaking. And the rocks, those things that are not wheat, the things that the good seed has not grown, It's not going to last. It's not going to survive. It shows that God's judgment is absolutely pure and perfect. What chance do we have? The Bible says this is your creator. I don't know about you, but, but, but there is something in me that wants to say, I can't. I can't be in relationship with you. I can't know you. And I suspect part of it is because in my sinful thinking and my sinful reasoning, I think, you know, somebody who would look at me with that sort of perfect, perfect judgment and perfect standard, how could somebody like that actually love me? And you may be tempted to look at God and think, God, if that's who you are, I don't know how you can love me. Why? I might as well just enjoy whatever time I have left on this earth before I go to this terrible fate. Because walking with you on this earth seems too hard. But here's the turn. The God whose judgment is inescapable does not even spare himself from that judgment. Instead, he enters into it. This is the gospel, and this is grace. Not that God chose not to judge, but that God came under that judgment himself. And we ought to say, well, what did he ever do wrong? What did he? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. What did he do to, 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 to deserve that? Nothing. He didn't. He chose to do it because that is the only way. That is the only way to put that thread of love through the needle of justice. It is the only way that he could simultaneously be just and holy and righteous and the one who justifies, the one who makes right sinners like you and me. He is perfectly holy 
but he is loving and good so much so that he had been planning a way that he would take that judgment on. Not just for my sin or your sin, but for the sin of the world. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that he who ever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. He who knew no sin, that is Jesus, he who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. So please, Christianity does not say that the gospel is God judges everybody else and you don't get judged. Nope, that is not Christianity. Christianity says God is holy and judges everyone. But Christ took a judgment for you. And if you would come under him, if you would bear his name instead of your own name, if you would die to yourself and live for him, if you would repent and turn and receive what he gives, if you would take in his word and his life, then you would not meet that judgment but that the price will be paid fully for you. That is the hope of Christianity. God is impeccably pure. Some questions for us. These things have been written that we would learn from them. Is, first of all, is our worship honoring of the Lord? I'm talking about your our corporate worship, I'm talking about our private worship, I'm talking about our worship in small groups. When, when God's people gather, when, when, they, when they bring themselves to the Lord, are, are we offering ourselves in a way that's reflective of who God is? Or is it more reflective of who we are and who we want to be? The next question is, have we reckoned with our own sin? You see, Israel's problem was they, 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 they couldn't be, they couldn't see themselves as somehow sinful. They had a justification for everything. What is our refuge from judgment? You see, we, we run to Christ because we recognize that he is the only refuge. As Peter would say, after God, after Jesus gave him a very hard word, and a lot of people walked away. Peter said to Jesus, where would I go, Lord? You're the only one. You're the only one who has the words of eternal life. What's your plan B? <laughs> What's my plan B? Come on, we all got a plan B. Maybe you're on to plan G right now, I don't know. Everyone's got a plan. Everyone's got a backup plan. There's something about us that thinks we can run. Thinks we can hide. Thinks that if I'm clever enough or if I galvanize enough of my resources, relationships, what have you, if, 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 I, if I just orchestrate things rightly... I'll get away with it. And how many of us, and I say us intentionally, us, are in church right now, but in our mind, we got a plan B. We got a plan B. Jesus is plan A. And he's the only one. I cannot encourage you enough. Just put the drafting paper down. Put it down. Sit with Jesus. If it feels uncomfortable, keep sitting with him. His yoke is easy. His burden is light. He doesn't 
break a bruised reed. In fact, God says he dwells with the lowly and the contrite. Sit with Jesus. If your pride recoils at that thought and says, I don't need to sit with Jesus. I don't need to walk with him. I'm showing I can do it myself. If you could do it yourself, he would never have come. Did you see his feet? The Lord is putting everything under his feet. He will rise to judge in the last day. Did you see his arm? His arm reaches far and wide, and there's no one who's beyond his reach. Did you see his eyes? His piercing eyes. But the hand of the Lord is pierced. It's pierced for our transgressions. God will remove sin from the earth. Welcome, children. Come on in. We're so glad you're here. You've showed up just in time to hear the gospel. <laughs> he who did not spare his own son, spare him from what? The judgment, the wrath. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Sit with Jesus. He may have something he wants to give you. Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Well, wait, I thought I have a lot of good reasons and excuses. No, you don't justify. He does. Who then is the one that condemns? Well, I condemn and other people condemn me all the time. Well, my voice and the voice of others doesn't really matter if God's already justified you. So no one, says Paul, Christ Jesus who died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God. And what's he doing? Interceding for us. Father, don't hold that sin against them. I took that one. Father, that word, that thoughtless word, that, that destructive reaction, that, that lust, that sin, that whatever it is, God, I took that. It's been covered, Father. He's at the right hand interceding for us. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you are good to us. May we... Bear your name proudly. Not because we're trying to create a Jesus in our own image, but because it means we're people who have reckoned with our own sin and we've cried to you for mercy. Would you extend that mercy to us? On the basis of Christ's death on the cross, Nothing in our hands we bring, simply to the cross we cling. Tis mercy all. We love you, Lord. Amen.